Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.15, Agrippina Minor, Murder by Mushrooms. Last week, we looked at the political achievements of Empress Agrippina, as she sought to repair Claudius's relationship with the Roman nobility and how she used her family name and dynastic history to aggrandize herself and her son. Today, we will look at the murkier side of her rule. But before we get going, I would like to thank Connie, my latest patron on Patreon. Thanks so much for your support, it really is appreciated. If you'd like to join Connie and my other hundred or so patrons, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Emperor Claudius had come to power after a coup d'etat, one in which he had had no part in planning or had even really supported. His entire legitimacy to rule was essentially that he was the only Julio-Claudian about, about whom no one had a particular problem. One whom everyone thought that they could control. As I said in a previous episode, during his entire reign, he had survived plots from Republicans on one hand, who wished to destroy the Principate and turn the clock back to pre-Augustine times, and opportunistic, ambitious men, who thought they could do a far better job being emperor than this handicapped weakling. As we have seen in this series, Agrippina had a different, more aristocratic approach to governance, and so her time as emperor saw a marked reduction in politically motivated trials and deaths. But as we saw with Silanus, she too was not beyond taking down enemies. Agrippina saw her main goal as empress as ensuring the succession of her son Nero. She had achieved part of that goal very early on in her reign, gaining him for him the position of co-heir along with Britannicus, and given that Nero was older than her stepson, who was still just a boy, it looked like all the hard work had been done. She had also got Nero a high-status bride in her stepdaughter Octavia, 
and a brilliant tutor in Seneca. All of this in the first couple of years of becoming empress. The two most likely ways that Claudius would be taken down would, by definition, disinherit her son, as they would either seek to restore the Republic or place themselves on the throne. Therefore, Agrippina had to shore up her husband's rule. Along with that, she also had to defend her own position, as she was the only reason why Nero was in the line of succession in the first place. If she fell, his chances of becoming emperor would go with her. We saw in the last episode how she had made sure that she placed supporters in key positions and rewarded them when they came through for her. But in order to ensure Nero's succession, she also had to work the other side of that equation, removing threats to him and the regime, and ensure that there was no one in place to threaten him when Claudius died. Therefore, in many ways, we can view the rest of her empresship as being a combination of attack and defence. She had gotten all the pieces in place, and now she just had to hold on until her husband finally died, and then she would get her prize. This, of course, meant that there would necessarily be casualties. Like I said two weeks ago, Silanus would not be her last victim. You may remember that there have been three major potential candidates to be Claudius's wife. Agrippina had won out, of course, but there had been considerable support for him marrying Lolia Paulina, a former wife of the Emperor Caligula. She was a considerably wealthy woman of high rank, and would have made a good empress had she not come up against the dynastic juggernaut that was Agrippina. Lolia was not an ambitious woman per se, but anti-Agrippina forces at court quickly came to the conclusion that she would be an ideal candidate to become empress should they manage to take Agrippina down. In many ways, these people viewed Lolia in the same way that they viewed Claudius, a weak patsy whom they could easily control. While she wasn't a serious threat, Lolia did present a loose end for Agrippina, and so, with her husband's support, she set about squashing her. She accused Lolia of treasonous activity, of having consulted with, quote, astrologers and magicians and the oracle of the Clarion Apollo about the imperial marriage. Basically, Agrippina is saying that Lolia was going about asking every kind of mystic and god that she could find, seeking to bring down Claudius and Agrippina's marriage. This kind of behaviour, this undermining of imperial authority, was taken very seriously. And so Lolia was denounced in the Senate by Claudius himself. Without being allowed to speak in her own defence, she was deprived of almost all of her great wealth and sent into exile. This was actually a comparatively lenient sentence for someone essentially accused of treason, but perhaps the regime was seeking to negate any violent reaction from Lolia's supporters. Instead, she was banished from Italy, and, after a discreet interval, was murdered by an assassin or forced to commit suicide, probably on Agrippina's orders. Cassius Dio states that, quote, As Agrippina didn't recognise the woman's head when it was brought to her, she opened the mouth with her own hand and inspected the teeth, which had certain peculiarities. While the sources place the blame thoroughly at Agrippina's feet for this, it is clear that this was yet another example of Cloys and Agrippina working together to take care of a common threat. Another example of this was in the case of Titus Statilius Taurus. He was the grandson of one of Augustus's great generals, 
and was a prominent senator, a former consul of Africa, and fabulously wealthy, famed for constructing the beautiful Torian Gardens. In 53, he was accused of black magic and embezzlement of funds during his time in Africa by one of his subordinates, a man called Priscus. Certain that he would be found guilty, Taurus committed suicide before a verdict was reached. Now, you may be asking where Agrippina comes into all of this. Well, Priscus was a known client of hers, and it was rumoured that she had her eyes on the gardens and wanted them for herself. Now, this rumour bears a great similarity to one charge made against Messalina, that she had taken down Asiaticus because she coveted his gardens. But there is actually a little bit of truth to this. One of Claudius's great public works projects was the enlargement of the Roman port of Ostia, which needed funding. When Taurus was taken down, the gardens were confiscated and sold by Agrippina, with the funds appropriated for the Ostian expansion. Now, whether this whole charge against Taurus was fabricated in order to gain these funds, or if it was simply the happy result of the trial of a guilty man, is unclear. But either way, it does show once again Agrippina involved, along with Claudius, in the downfall of a prominent Roman. But she was also quite capable of taking down rivals on her own. You may remember that Agrippina's first husband, and father of Nero, had been a man named Domitius. Well, he had two sisters, Domitia and Lepida, and they weren't exactly on speaking terms with their former sister-in-law. Domitius' first husband, Passianus, had divorced her in favour of Agrippina in 41, becoming her second husband, meaning that when he died, Agrippina inherited his great fortune rather than Domitia. She'd also been Nero's guardian while Agrippina was in exile, and so the empress blamed her for Nero's lack of education on her return. Lepida didn't lose a husband to Agrippina, but she was the mother of Messalina, and so was likely not exactly a fan of the woman who had played such a big part in her daughter's fall, which of course had culminated in her death. This of course meant that she was also the aunt of Britannicus, whose position in the succession had taken such a hit when Agrippina had promoted her son Nero to being the senior co-heir to the throne. Agrippina did not want to have these ghosts from her past threatening her present, and so set about attempting to knock her former in-laws down. She identified Lepida as the main threat. Her policy of isolating Britannicus depended on him not having anyone influential in his corner. She couldn't afford the risk of letting his grandmother stick around. Therefore, she accused Lepida of using magical acts to attempt to kill her, and for failing to keep her slaves under control in Calabria, and thus endangering the security of Italy. Thus, she invoked the double whammy of making her appear to be a sorceress murderess and someone in danger of bringing about another Spartacus, or maybe even raising an army to lead a coup against the emperor. Lepida was tried to these crimes, and one of the prosecution witnesses who testified against her was her nephew Nero. She was convicted and executed, despite a vehement defence by Claudius's former favourite Narcissus, who spoke on Lepida's behalf. The sources are generally in agreement that Lepida was a victim of a witch hunt, pun intended, but it is possible that there was at least some evidence that she was guilty. Agrippina didn't tend to attack people without there being at least some smoke. 
Lepida certainly had the motive, and potentially the means, even if we do discount the magic business. But, then again, there is a pattern emerging here, of those opposed to Agrippina finding themselves dead. Be it by fair means or foul, the Empress had taken down another rival. As I just said, Lepida's main defender was Narcissus, and he was proving himself to be a habitual thorn in Agrippina's side. While his position of first among the freedmen had been lost to Pallas after the fall of Messalina and the rise of Agrippina, he was still a powerful and influential figure in the Claudian government. What is interesting is that the two should have been natural allies. They were both staunch defenders of the imperial system and of Claudius's regime. Sure, he had championed a different choice of wife, but there is no reason in principle why they should have become so implacably opposed. So why were they? Well, it all comes back to the fall of Messalina. She and Narcissus were always known to be close, and had, to an extent, run a good deal of the government together. Therefore, when she fell so spectacularly, it reflected extremely badly on him. He had managed to avoid taking any punishment for her treason by throwing her under the bus, but he couldn't escape from it entirely, and his very action of taking her down also didn't help his cause, as he was now known as an Empress Slayer. Therefore, he managed to be tagged both as someone too close to the former discredited regime, but also a regime killer. He had been the cause of a great deal of embarrassment, of bringing the reputation of Claudius's government to its knees. Agrippina, by contrast, was the one who had restored its dignity along with Pallas. Therefore, their interests became diametrically opposed to one another. To restore his position, Narcissus would have to take down Agrippina, while the Empress knew that everything that she had achieved, including the naming of Nero as Claudius's heir, could be undone if Narcissus became top dog once more. Neither of them wanted to rock the boat too hard. Like I said, neither wants to damage the regime upon which they both depended. So what they did was probe for weakness, seeking any opportunity to knock the other down a peg. This is why Narcissus had so vehemently defended Domitia, seeking to portray Agrippina as a haughty, jealous, vindictive woman, hell-bent on destroying a rival for petty reasons. Their feud first became public knowledge over the draining of the Fucine Lake. This is one of Claudius's great public works projects. The Fucine Lake in central Italy had been a menace to locals for centuries. It was a great mass of stagnant water, covering over 50 square miles, that constantly flooded and was a source of malaria. The plan was to completely drain the lake and use the resulting fertile land for farming. It was a bold plan, and the man tapped to project manage the whole affair was Narcissus. This had been a tremendous show of faith by Claudius, as this task was hardly in the purview of an imperial secretary. The logistical task was massive, requiring the digging of a tunnel beneath a nearby mountain in order to connect the lake to the river Lyris, some three and a half miles away. It took 30,000 men 11 years to complete the task. Pliny the Elder said that this was, quote, a work which cost a sum beyond all calculation and employed a countless multitude of workmen for many years. In those parts where the soil was found to be terrious, it was necessary to pump up the water by the aid of machinery, 
In other parts, again, the solid rock had to be hewn through. All this, too, had to be done in the midst of the darkness within, a series of operations which can only be adequately conceived by those who are witness of them, and which no human language can possibly describe. The opening of this tunnel had to be fitting of the incredible achievement of its construction. A mock naval battle was staged on the soon-to-be-drained lake, involving 19,000 combatants. Great stands were erected around it, and thousands of people from all across the surrounding countryside gathered on nearby hills to watch the historic event. Presiding over the whole thing were Claudius, Agrippina and Nero. The men, dressed in military garb, she in a cloak woven with gold. At the climax of the battle, the sluices were opened, allowing the water from the lake to pour into the tunnel. Or at least that was the plan. In fact, the entrance to the tunnel had not been dug deep enough, meaning that only a trickle of water flowed out. This was, as one might expect, rather a damp squib, and so everyone had to rather sheepishly leave while the tunnel entrance was redug. Once that was done, everyone reconvened and went through the whole shebang again, this time with a gladiatorial fight on pontoons and a great banquet arranged close to the tunnel, so all the great and good could watch this triumph of Roman engineering. This time, the water did flow, but rather too violently. Here it is described by Tacitus. Quote, a banquet too was prepared close to the outflow of the lake, only to result, however, in a general panic as the outrushing volume of water carried away the adjoining portions of the work, while those at a greater distance experienced either the shock or the terror produced by the crash and reverberation. Everyone, including the emperor, had to run for their lives. There would be no third attempt. While further attempts would be made during the reign of Hadrian, and many times again during the Middle Ages and early modern period, it wouldn't be until the 19th century that the feat would finally be accomplished, using the same tunnel as the ones constructed by Narcissus's workmen. This embarrassing debacle was a godsend to Agrippina. He used it as a mill around the freedman's neck. Tacitus writes, quote, Agrippina profited by the emperor's agitation to charge Narcissus, as director of the scheme, with avarice and embezzlement. He was not to be silenced, and retorted with an attack on her feminine imperiousness and the extravagance of her ambitions. These are, of course, standard accusations thrown at any woman who deigned to play a political role, and show that really had nothing concrete on her. Equally, while she spread the theory that he was the cause of the fiasco by embezzling funds and then deliberately arranging the collapse to conceal the crime, she couldn't lay a killing blow either. Narcissus then accused her of having an affair with her ally Pallas. Such accusations had dogged Narcissus when he had been close with Messalina, and so it was natural and an easy denunciation to make. According to Tacitus, he stated that, quote, She had committed adultery with Pallas in order to leave no doubt that she held her dignity, her modesty, her body, her all, cheaper than a throne. Sometime in 53, no idea when, Claudius fell ill. The emperor was an old man, so any kind of ill health had the potential for sudden death. In order to protect her son's position in the succession, she had Claudius send a letter to the Senate explicitly saying that, in the event of his death, Nero should take control of the administration. 
an unusually specific pronouncement that none of his predecessors had ever made about their heirs. They usually just adopted them, trusting that that would be sufficient indication that they were next in line. Cassius Dio states that, quote, She persuaded Claudius to make known to the populace by proclamation and to the Senate by letter that, if he should die, Nero was already capable of administering the business of the state. In consequence of this, he became a person of importance and his name was on everybody's lips. Whereas, in the case of Britannicus, many did not even know whether he was living and the rest regarded him as insane and an epileptic for this was the report that Agrippina gave out. In the event, the emperor survived. But potentially as a result of this brush with death, he and Agrippina made extra efforts to ensure that Nero was ready to take control of the empire should Britannicus not be of age when the transition occurred. Nero therefore made a number of high-profile public appearances, including some well-regarded speeches in order to protect his image. For example... Nero made an eloquent address extolling the historical importance of Ilium, the Roman name for the city of Troy. He, through Agrippina, claimed descent from Aeneas, a Trojan prince who had fled the fallen city and settled in Italy, and so associating him with that drew further attention to his august line. Claudius then awarded tax breaks to the city, claiming it was as a result of his heir's eloquent words. Speeches by Nero about the cities of Bononia, modern Bologna, and Apamea, a city in modern Turkey, also resulted in financial assistance. When Claudius left the city to attend the Latin festival, he essentially left Nero in charge, giving him vital governing experience, and another bump in prestige. It was also around this time that Nero officially married Octavia, Claudius's daughter, This all was about laying the groundwork for an image of Nero as a generous and competent leader in waiting. This was the state of play then, in the pivotal year of 54. You can always tell in the sources when something big is about to happen, because they all love to engage in a little bit of heavy foreshadowing. A comet apparently appears in the sky, a common sign that the sovereign was soon to die. Blood fell as rain. Lightning struck legionary camps and set tents ablaze. Swarms of bees settled on the capital, and there were reports of the births of half-human, half-monster children. This was the last year before Britannicus finally took the toga virilis, or toga of manhood, coming of age. This would bring him up to the same level as Nero, essentially equalising them as potential co-emperors. No more would Nero be the senior partner. Narcissus lined up behind Britannicus, stating that, according to Tacitus, quote, he would embrace Britannicus, expressing earnest wishes for his speedy arrival at a mature age, and would raise his hand, now to heaven, now to the young prince, with entreaty that as he grew up he would drive out his father's enemies and also take vengeance on the murderers of his mother. This was, of course, aimed squarely against Agrippina and Nero. The Empress would not allow her son to be attacked and threatened in this way, and this only in further intensified their feud. It is at this point that the sources state that Claudius started to lose faith in Agrippina, and regret his decision not only to marry her, but also to agree to the naming of her son as heir, along with his own. The reasons for this are unclear. 
Suetonius states that he lost faith in her due to his suspicion of her infidelity with men such as Pallas. He writes, quote, Towards the close of his life, he gave some manifest indications that he repented of his marriage with Agrippina and his adoption of Nero. For some, his freedman, noticing with approbation his having condemned the day before a woman accused of adultery, he remarked, It has been my misfortune to have wives who have been unfaithful to my bed, but they did not escape punishment. Here, of course, he is linking Agrippina with Messalina, of whom, of course, had been killed or forced to commit suicide after her infamous bigamous act of infidelity. Cassius Dio, however, states that he had instead become angered by Agrippina's actions, referring to her taking down of her rivals, her feud with Narcissus, and sidelining of Britannicus. Tacitus, on the other hand, takes a completely different view, stating that Claudius never lost faith in Agrippina, and it was instead the feud with Narcissus only that led to the murderous acts of 54. This all means that we need to take the initiative ourselves to work out what the heck was going on here. What is clear is that Narcissus' refusal to back down and to go all in on the succession of Britannicus was a direct threat to Agrippina. Her one true goal through her entire reign had been ensuring her son's succession. She had been willing for it to be a co-emperorship, trusting in her ability to guide and protect Nero while keeping Britannicus in check. But Narcissus was very publicly threatening the status quo, by essentially saying that he would make it his main goal to remove Nero from the succession and restore Britannicus to being the sole heir. If Cassius Dio and Suetonius had believed, Claudius was being persuaded by Narcissus that either he had been mistaken in naming Nero as his heir, or worse, that he had been duped by his treacherous wife. Britannicus was not yet of age, but according to both historians, Claudius was prepared to declare him of age prematurely and then name him as sole heir. Suetonius claims that the emperor said that, quote, I do so that the Roman people may at last have a real Caesar. What is striking to me is that while Cassius Dio and Suetonius are very clear that Claudius seems to have this change of heart over the succession, they are fairly ambiguous on why that occurred. The succession plan still made as much sense now in 54 as it had when it was originally formulated. And Claudius was not the kind of ruler who would just tear up a carefully laid plan with no good reason. Messing with the succession could have had disastrous consequences, as quite apart from angering Agrippina and Nero's supporters, it would also weaken the claim of Britannicus. The best kind of succession plan is one that is accepted by everyone as being just how it is. The more it is fiddled with, the less likely it is that it would be the case. Many learned historians have argued for centuries over this, and I won't pretend to have any better answers than they, but I would say that it does seem to go against Claudius's pattern of behaviour to have tried to reverse the adoption of Nero at this point, unless he had been presented with irrefutable evidence of wrongdoing by Agrippina. And if that were the case, all the sources would joyfully report such evidence in exquisite detail, just as they had with Messalina. Therefore, in my opinion, what is about to happen was not due to a change of heart by the emperor. What seems more likely to me is that Agrippina felt that her position, and that of Nero, having once appeared so strong, was now being weakened thanks to attacks by Narcissus and senators opposed to the regime. 
All these people were just waiting for the coming of age of Britannicus, and then they would strike against the empress. Whatever the case, it is clear that at this time, Agrippina felt like she was in danger of losing it all. But she had one advantage. Her enemies had made the mistake of revealing their hand too early. For all of their pronouncements, Britannicus had still not yet come of age, and Nero was still the senior heir. They'd essentially telegraphed their plans in advance. But even with this advantage, time was running out. Even if Claudius did not declare Britannicus as being of age prematurely, he would become so naturally in just a few short months. If Agrippina wished to protect herself and her son, she would have to act now. In October of 54, Narcissus, suffering from debilitating gout, apparently brought on by anxiety over the succession, left Rome to go to the baths at Campania for rest and recuperation. Not long after he had left, though, Claudius fell seriously ill after a great banquet, and, early the next morning, died. Those are the cold facts, though even some of those are disputed. Now, you don't need to be a genius to work out this all seems mightily suspicious. How convenient that with Britannicus only six months away from coming of age, and his great defender Narcissus out of town, the emperor should just up and die without warning. If that is what you're thinking, then you are on exactly the same wavelength as pretty much every one of our sources, though they do differ on the details. Tacitus states that Agrippina, who had long before resolved on murdering her husband, had obtained mushrooms that could be easily poisoned, hoping for a quick kill so to give her maximum time to bed in her son's rule before Britannicus came of age. She supplied this poison to the emperor's meal taster, who surreptitiously administered it after having performed his check. However, apparently, the taster didn't add enough poison, forcing the empress to improvise. Tacitus writes, quote, She availed herself of the complicity of Xenophon, the physician, which she had already secured. Under pretense of helping the emperor's efforts to vomit, this man, it is supposed, introduced into his throat a feather smeared with some rapid poison, for he knew the greatest crimes are perilous in their inception, but well rewarded after their consummation. She then prevented Claudius's family from seeing the dying emperor, and put her plans in motion to secure Nero on the throne. Quote, Meanwhile, the Senate was summoned, and prayers rehearsed by the consuls and priests for the emperor's recovery, though the lifeless body was being wrapped in blankets with warm applications, while all was being arranged to establish Nero on the throne. At first, Agrippina, seemingly overwhelmed by grief and seeking comfort, clasped Britannicus in her embraces, called him the very image of his father, and hindered him by every possible device from leaving the chamber. She also detained his sisters, Antonia and Octavia, closed every approach to the palace with a military guard, and repeatedly gave out that the emperor's health was better. If I may briefly interject, you may remember that Agrippina here is following the same playbook as Livia. She too was accused of murdering her husband through poisoning his food, and then restricting access to the body while she ensured that Tiberius would gain the throne. This is, of course, sound strategy, whether or not there had been foul play in the deaths of either of their husbands but the cool and calculating way that this was done 
certainly has led some to suspect this is all planned in advance. Tacitus continues, quote, At last, on noon on the 13th of October, the gates of the palace were suddenly thrown open, and Nero went forth to the cohort, which was on guard after military custom. There, at the suggestion of the commanding officer, he was hailed with joyful shouts and set on a litter. Some, it is said, hesitated and looked around and asked where Britannicus was. Then, when there was no one to lead a resistance, they yielded to what was offered them. Nero was conveyed into the camp, having first spoken suitably to the occasion and promised a donative after the example of his father's bounty, he was unanimously greeted as emperor. This is the most detailed account of the death of Claudius, but of course given the momentous nature of the event, it is covered in all the histories of the age. Tacitus, along with the other sources, seem to be drawing from the account of Pliny the Elder, who was a contemporary of these events. Cassius Dio offers a similar version, but names Agrippina as the sole poisoner. Suetonius is a little more circumspect, saying that while some believe that Agrippina poisoned him with the mushrooms, others blame the taster acting on her orders. Juvenal wrote in one of his satires, quote, Whenever your infant parasite approaches him at dinner, lowly friends are served dubious fungi, while the master eats mushrooms, though of the type Claudius ate before the kind his wife served, after which he ate nothing more. There were, though, doubters at the time. Josephus, for example, while stating the story that Agrippina had Claudius poisoned, adds the reservation that it was, quote, according to reports, suggesting that perhaps he didn't fully believe it. But he is decidedly in the minority. The ancient writers, both historians and dramatists alike, are fully convinced that Agrippina had Claudius murdered, and then did everything in her power to put all the pieces in place so that when Nero was pronounced emperor, it was presented as a fait accompli. However, modern historians are not all in agreement with their ancient counterparts, and they offer some very plausible reasons. Claudius was old, significantly above the average life expectancy for an ancient Roman, and already suffered numerous illnesses, many of them gastric in nature, which would explain why he would suddenly die after eating at a banquet. They also point out the similarities between this and the accusations thrown at Livia after Augustus's death, and that poison was a method of murder stereotypically associated with women, especially stepmothers. The whole mushroom thing too is a bit weird. Why not just slip in a poisonous mushroom, rather than going through the whole palaver of having to poison a perfectly good one? It may also have been that disease was sweeping the city, as all the sources report that a number of senators and magistrates had been taken off that year. Maybe he died of that. The cause of death that most people settle on is still the mushrooms, but untampered with. One of the conditions that Claudius has been diagnosed with by modern scholars is dystonia, and one of the side effects of that is a lack of bodily defence against certain kinds of toxins, including one found in certain kinds of mushrooms, ones that Claudius could have eaten that day. This would explain why he would drop down dead, but that no one else at the banquet felt any side effects. Now, I'm imagining that you all think I'm going to side with them, don't you? It certainly does seem to be the good revisionist thing to do. But no, 
for once, I'm actually with Tacitus. For me, there are a couple of reasons why I suspect that Agrippina did murder her husband. First is the unanimity of the sources. While we can doubt their motives, the fact that nigh on every source agrees broadly on what happened, even if they differ on the details, has to count for something. This is in contrast, for example, of the descriptions of the death of Augustus, where Suetonius, the least reliable and most gossipy of our main sources, does not blame Livia. Indeed, I think it's more likely that Tacitus and Cassius Dio used the story of Agrippina's murder of Claudius, which did happen, and use it as a template for the death of Augustus. The second reason is that the whole thing seems just too convenient for me to be anything but murder. What is the likelihood that, with Britannicus just about to come of age, with supporters beginning to rally behind him, with his most powerful supporter just having left the scene, with Nero just having had a great publicity offensive, that Claudius should just drop and die at the crucial moment. The speed and efficiency with which she acted after her husband's death is also better explained if she had already made a detailed plan for how everything would go down. Now, of course, this could have just been a plan that she had ready and waiting at any moment, but everything went down so smoothly that one must wonder if it had all been pre-planned to go down at that precise time. But that is just my view. The fact is, we can never know. But, by fair means or foul, Agrippina was now, once more, a widow. The emperor was dead, and Agrippina had engineered the situation absolutely perfectly, so that Nero was proclaimed as his successor by the troops, the senate, and the people of Rome. Britannicus was completely sidelined. His supporters could not rally around him in time, and he was too young as yet to claim it for himself. The will of Claudius, the one that named both as heirs, was suppressed by Agrippina's supporters in the Senate. So, she'd done it. she achieved her goal. She was now the very proud mother of the sole emperor of Rome. But of course, it was not quite time to start pinning mission accomplished banners onto nearby warships, because there was still quite a bit to do. Nero was emperor, but Britannicus and his supporters were still hanging around. The job of securing her son on the throne was still yet to be done, quite apart from the actual business of governing. Agrippina had not gone through all of this just to be sidelined. She wanted to run the empire with her son. Trouble was, she'd never asked herself the most important question. Did her son want to rule with her? And it is on that cliffhanger that I will leave you for this week. There won't be an episode next week as I'm off on holiday, making the dubious choice of going camping in Scotland for a few days, but when I come back, we will finally look at the final chapter in our heroine saga. Be careful what you wish for Agrippina, because you just might get it.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.